TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women, with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Welcome to part three of the recap of my volunteer trip to Greece. As you may know, I recently crowdfunded a campaign to go to Greece and help out in the refugee camps there. In last week's podcast, which was episode 43, you'll hear stories of my second week over there. After finishing up at Ritzona camp on the mainland, I headed out to an island called Kios, where boats full of refugees were regularly arriving from Turkey. I'll pick up where I left off in last week's episode. I know that I promised to tell you all about the port shift and being on call for boat arrivals. So here goes. The volunteer group that I was working with, which was known as SIRST or Kios Eastern Shore Response Team, had a very organized way of attending boat arrivals. Volunteers would take turns to be the ones to run and jump because obviously these things could happen any night, any night. A couple of volunteers each night would be rostered onto what was called port shift. They would head to the port just before daybreak, which is at around 4.30 or 5am, and they would keep an eye out for boats. Just before the sunrise is about the most common time for boats to arrive, as they usually set out from Turkey in the dark to avoid detection, and then they aim to land at first light in Greece. If the Greek Coast Guard picked them up, they would be towed into port, which was why we waited there. Next, there was a role called on-call. So that was the duty where volunteers would go on-call, phones on, sleeping with part of their clothing on, ready to run and jump should a boat arrive in the middle of the night. If a boat came in somewhere other than the port or if there were lots of refugees landing at once, these were the volunteers who would get a call up and they'd have to jump out of bed and drive quickly to wherever the boat was. If a boat did arrive, the volunteers would race to the scene of the landing and hand out things like blankets, dry clothes, food and water. Of course, they'd also offer first aid and comfort to those who hadn't fared the passage well. There were often women and children on the boats that needed extra attention. If the SIRS team could make it there before the authorities, they would have more time to help the refugees before the, they were whisked away on a bus for processing. So it was a bit of a race sometimes. Teams also had hypothermia training and they carried those foil space blankets with them in case they found someone who wasn't coping after being drenched in the freezing cold. You have to remember that at the time I was over there, it was winter and temperatures were getting down to about two degrees or less overnight. It was said that it was a privilege to be able to do this job, to be able to assist these people and bring them comfort and support, to welcome them to the EU and to show them that there are people there who care. I did a port shift and an on-call shift while I was there, but we didn't have any arrivals those nights. It was said that about three boats tried to leave Turkey at 6am on the morning that I did port shift, but they must have been turned back by either the EU or the Turkish Coast Guards. If you want to know more about how and why these people come across by boat, by the way, it's all there in last week's episode, so make sure you go back and check it out. It's actually quite fascinating. So two days after I left Kios, the weather improved and the boats did start arriving again. Uh, 140 people arrived in one night, actually. 
In a way, I was disappointed that I wasn't there anymore to help, but I was also glad that no one had crossed in the freezing cold and wind uh, on the nights that I'd been on watch because the weather had been pretty bad when I was there. I also know that the people arriving were receiving the best quality care from the SIRS team, and that's all that matters. So anyway, after the refugees land, they're then taken away in buses to the camps on the island. Now, there's a couple of camps on Kios. Uh, they're known as Suda and Vial. As volunteers, we didn't have access to Vial. Uh, we heard it was actually pretty horrific in there, and maybe that's why outsiders aren't usually allowed in. Who knows? So instead, our focus when volunteering with Sirst was to work at Suda because we had access there. The occupants of Suda are living in tents, which is odd, very odd, since the Greek government recently made a statement that all the refugee camps, that's all the refugee camps, have now been winterised and the tents have been swapped out for lockable ISO boxes. While this may be the case in Ritzona camp, where I was on the mainland, because they were all in ISO boxes, it certainly wasn't the scene that I saw in Suda. Now, I saw it with my own eyes. There were dozens of tents. Apart from being more exposed to the elements, tents also provide some other issues for the occupants. We were told that Suda had a rat problem. So then the rats were gnawing through the canvas and they were even putting bunches of steel wool in the corners to try and deter the rats, but that wasn't working because the rats are actually pretty uh, stubborn when it comes to chewing through those sorts of things. Um, also, the tents were more of a fire risk, so occupants weren't allowed to cook in the tents, but they still smoked inside, and the week after I left, one of the tents burned down. Um, also, tents aren't lockable, which makes them less safe and secure, especially for women and children. So it was disappointing to hear that the Greek government had told the EU that no one's in tents anymore, when actually they were. There was also a definite air of tension in the camp. That was the one thing I noticed the most when I was walking through there. There was very little happiness, no laughter, no lightness of spirit, which is understanding. The feeling was very heavy. It was downcast. It was bleak and it kind of felt a bit on edge. But we were there to try and change that, even in just this a very small but hopefully meaningful way. So... One of the most simple yet very effective initiatives that Sirst had created was the daily tea service. And I did mention this last week and I said I'd go into detail about it today. So every day at exactly the same time, a small army of volunteers would rock up with the biggest urns you've ever seen, chocked to the brim, ready to serve tea to whoever might want to come out of their tents to have a cuppa. It was a great way to break up the day for the people living in the camps. It gave them a reason to come outside even when it was cold. And it seemed like it was also an informal English language session. Us volunteers, we would stand there and we would hold the cups, the milk, the sugar, and we would strike up a conversation with anyone who seemed keen for a chat. I would ask people their name, where they were from, how old their kids were, how many kids they had, you know, simple get-to-know-you type of questions, and they would respond in English, and it was really great. Now, serving the tea was a really nice way to break the ice and chat with people, so I ended up doing it most days. I, I really, really loved it. 
Um, people would come up and ask for sugar. I, I soon found out, and I know this goes against like all the naturopathic stuff I'll usually tell you, but yes, I was standing there offering people sugar. I was like, oh my God, if someone takes a photo of me doing this, it's like, there's Jules, the naturopath, you know, the one who talks about being sugar-free, standing there holding a bag of sugar for people. <laughs> but it was actually awesome because sugar seemed to be like the most popular job. So if you want to chat with people, you want to be the person holding the sugar bag. So people would come up and ask for sugar. Then they would count the spoonfuls. So they, in English, they'd one, two, three. Oh, and you do not want to know how many spoonfuls of sugar these people put in their tea. I was just like, oh, I'll just look away now. And they're going four, five. <laughs> so also uh, most people are really polite and they used, you know, please and thank you. And they would give us a little smile. So it was, it was really, really lovely job. I really liked the way that some of the men would say, thank you, sister, when I gave them a cup or some sugar. That was really lovely. So as I continued to turn up to camp every day, I began to get to know some of the characters there. And I'd like to share a couple of their stories with you because I thought they were pretty cool. First up, there was a bright young man from Syria known as EKD. EKD had a spark about him from the get-go. He was energetic, he was charismatic, and he was one of the only people in the camp who smiled with genuine enthusiasm. It was infectious. I could tell that it was probably a bit of a mask to cover up some shit that he'd no doubt seen, but I loved his conscious decision to choose joy in even the small moments, even if it was something as simple as the tea service. The first thing I noticed about him was a very American accent, and I even heard him use the word doll in a sentence, you know, like Homer Simpson. It turns out that he learned English from watching TV and primarily American TV shows back when he was in Syria. I found out that he can't read or write very well at all, but you could tell he was super smart and he had an aptitude for picking up languages really easily. He'd already done research about Australia because <laughs> when I said I was from Australia, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he says, do you actually use the term put another shrimp on the barbie? And I laughed and I assured him that we don't. <laughs> I was like, no one says that in Australia, mate. Uh, we also explained to him that in Australia they're actually called prawns anyway. <laughs> I also tried to teach him some alternative Australianisms. I don't know how I went, but I tried to teach him how to use yeah, nah in a sentence or terms like chuck a yui. Uh, he soaked up this new information like a sponge and you could actually tell he was locking it all away in his brain for later use. <laughs> God help the next Aussie that comes along, huh? I wondered what kind of job someone like EKD would get once he settled in Europe, hey, because he's unable to read and write, but he's highly intelligent and extremely quick-witted. What an interesting combo, hey? EKD was also a bit of a dreamer, perhaps even an idealist. He had a tattoo painted on his neck in henna, which is a semi-permanent ink, and it said, we all bleed the same blood. I loved it. I, he even let me take a photo of it. So I'll put that picture on my blog post and that'll be up now. Then there was a boy from Morocco. Now, unfortunately, I didn't learn his name, but he, was, he really stayed in my memory, even though I only met him a few times. He'd been persecuted in his own country and then he came to Greece, like everyone else, by boat. He said to us, Morocco might be a nice place for you to visit, but for me, it is not safe. 
I could tell he was a bit of an outcast in the camp because he wasn't Syrian, he's not Afghani, he's not Iraqi, so he wasn't really befriended or taken under the wing by anyone. And he was young, really, like he just seemed so young and innocent. He had the kindest eyes. They actually reminded me of Pharrell Williams, of all people. I could tell that this boy was essentially a good person, but he seemed lost and he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. His friends were a bunch of misfits, fringe dwellers, who you could tell were trouble. On my last day there, I found my Moroccan friend to give him a hug and say goodbye. The hardest part was the reality of telling him that I was actually leaving. When he asked where I was going, I said, I'm going home. And suddenly I realized how much weight that statement had. I had a home to go to, he didn't, and it all just felt so insensitive all of a sudden for me to have even said that's what I was doing. I still think about this kid. I I know I call him a kid, but he was actually probably about 19 or 20. But his vulnerability just seemed so dangerous in a place like that. I can understand now why the NGOs there tell you not to friend the people that you meet on Facebook or swap numbers or keep in touch or anything. You get so attached to people so quickly when they're in that vulnerable place. And it seems like a nice idea to stay friends, but you have to remember that as volunteers, we move on, we go home, but they can't. It's so hard to respect that rule of of not staying friends with them, but I guess it's a rule for a very good reason. Overall, I feel like a fair few people in the camps were slowly going crazy, traumatized, stuck, made to wait, put in a pressure cooker, looked down upon by authorities, not given a whole lot of hope. It's a recipe for mental illness. I saw a real lack of support for those suffering from PTSD. I think it was kind of accepted that pretty much everyone had PTSD to some degree, but I didn't see a whole lot of action being taken to support people in order to improve their mental health. Seriously, bravo to groups like CIRST for creating activities like this tea service and English lessons and all of the things they do. They were a simple but very valuable step that gave life in the camp some sort of routine and normality. It's a shame there just aren't the resources available to do a whole lot more than that. I guess that's the harsh reality of war though. And PTSD wasn't just limited to adults. When I was working in the childcare centre, I was playing with a young boy who was about eight or nine years old. He found this large tub that contained loads of those, you know, those hard plastic animal figurines, you know, the type, like each plastic animal is about eight to 10 centimetres long. There were farm animals, wild animals, domestic animals like dogs, dinosaurs, all in the box, you name it. Anyway, what he'd do is he'd pick out two animals, one for him and one for me. He would motion for us to make our animals run towards each other like we were playing. Then he'd get his animal to jump all over my animal and he'd make a loud noise like a bomb exploding like (laughs) Then he'd grab my now dead animal and he'd just throw it to one side. Then he'd select me a new replacement animal, but then he'd repeat the process. So it'd be like (laughs) boom, you know, and another lifeless plastic animal was cast aside. So pretty soon I had a pile of about 20 den animals next to me and I didn't know what to do. Like I don't have kids and I was a little out of my depth. I wasn't sure whether to let him keep going or to tell him to stop or to tell him that it was wrong to kill things like that. So I decided to just let him keep going with the carnage because I thought maybe this was all part of him like processing some stuff. 
Anyway, when talking about it with some volunteers later on, I found out that not only does this child have PTSD, he saw his father get hit by a bomb in Syria. Talk about full on. Like, how does a kid even come back from that? I'm really glad that I didn't try to stop his game of blowing up the farm animals. I figured he's got a lot to work through, if working through that kind of stuff is even possible. By the way, this is why I loved, loved, loved the Children's Centre provided by Cirst. I, I know I spoke about it a lot last week. It gives kids and parents a safe place to play and hang out and hopefully even heal a little. And this is why they need this space so badly. Speaking of which, I'm still waiting to hear back on a final price from Yana to install the air conditioning in the Children's Centre with the money I've given her from the crowdfunding that I did. In order to have it fitted, uh, they're going to have to upgrade the electricity supply to the building, unfortunately, because it's really old. Uh, so they might, it might cost a little bit more than we first thought. It's a stretch, but I think we'll be able to draw upon some more sponsors and get a few more donations and we'll just get it over the line. Um, so if you did donate some money to my crowdfunding, hang in there. I'll have some uh, more information for you soon. If you're interested in the developments, keep an eye out on my Facebook page or in my newsletter. I'll keep you posted via those places. If you would like to make a donation, it's not too late. You can contact me at hello at julesgalloway.com and I'll put you in touch with the right people. I hope you enjoyed my three-part series on my trip to Greece. It certainly was a big adventure, a very fulfilling job, and it's something that I would absolutely love to do again. If you're interested in volunteering yourself, I'll pop the links for Involvement Volunteers International, CIRST, and Lighthouse Relief in the show notes. Stay tuned because next week we turn our attention back to the health and wellness sphere and I've got some fantastic episodes coming up for you. If you're new around here and you would like to grab some free recipes or some tips on healing adrenal fatigue, there's plenty for you over at julesgalloway.com right now and you'll find some awesome gifts there just waiting for you to download them. I hope to see you next week. In the meantime, stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.